The names and places on the Double K Super Show have been changed to protect the innocent. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris Karam. I'm Mark Hansrofsky, a.k.a. Babylon's sister. <laughs> you never cease to amaze me, Mark. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. You're welcome, my friend. We're here to talk about an album that celebrates its 40th anniversary this year and was also the end of an era for this band. It was definitely the end of the uh, original cla- or classic era. Of course, I'm talking about Steely Dan's Gaucho album. And that album was released, according to Wikipedia, on November 21st, 1980. Mark, what are your initial thoughts on Asia? I mean, Gaucho. <laughs> Hello. Well, a lot of people really did confuse it for Asia Part 2. It has a lot of the same textures, a lot of the same ambience. Um, People certainly waited three and a half years for it. And at the time of its making, it was the most expensive studio record ever created, more expensive than The Wall even. And uh, overall, it was a a smash hit, of course. Um, Although the biggest hit single that Steely Dan had that year was not on the album, go figure. Uh, but overall, it's it's quite a swan song, I would think. Most definitely, this album has a very uh, intricate backstory. It's more more like soap opera. The album began recording in 1979, early 1979, and by this point, uh, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, of course, the, those two who are Steely Dan, went had moved back to New York City and were recording the album there, and. Apparently, very early on, their record company, ABC Records, had been bought out by MCA Records, and this uh, immediately created some conflicts as Becker and Fagan felt, well, we're signed to ABC, we're not signed to MCA, and we don't want to give it to MCA. And part of the reason for that also was because they had signed a deal with Warner Brothers to, I think they owed uh, ABC one or two more records, and then they were going to move over to Warner's. But anyway... This started a lawsuit that went on uh, during the making of the entire album and, in fact, uh, almost threatened to push the album's release back beyond 1980. But eventually MCA did get the rights to the album. They did release it, and it was a smash hit. There was also the issue of Walter Becker, who had some mounting uh, personal problems and personal issues, not the least of which was getting hit by a car in New York City and his leg was broken, and at one point it was very hard for him to get to the studio. I believe this this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act, so he found it increasingly harder and harder to make it to the studio sessions, and at one point just stopped going, leaving Donald Fagan and producer Gary Katz and uh, executive engineer Roger Nichols to puzzle out the the rest of the recording sessions and mixing sessions by themselves. So, you know, obviously... And this album reflects uh, a very dark tone, I would think. I don't know if you would agree with that, Mark. It has a very cynical tone, which is, of course, you know, Steely Dan's signature tone. Um, this record is a bit more downbeat. It's a little bit less varied texture-wise. It's quite a bit more moody than most of Steely Dan's 70s albums, which is really saying something. Yep. Definitely. Uh, This album definitely reflects the darker side of life, and some of these stories are really kind of character sketches of sketchy characters, people who are maybe not living their best life or are living in a sort of darkness. And But yet at the same time, it's offset, of course, by the impeccable oral touches, musical touches. Of course, they have the best of the best when it came to studio musicians, including some one you know, notable newcomer who we'll talk about later when his song comes up. Yeah, this album, I think this album suffers from one thing. It suffers from being the follow-up to Asia. You know, when you've reached the pinnacle of your career in terms of record sales, artistic achievement, and everything else, how do you top that? I mean, we've seen this with a lot of major bands and some bands rise to the occasion and some don't. I think Steely Dan did. I don't understand why this album gets such a backlash from some listeners and some fans. A lot of it has to do with the time that was released. You know, the late 70s, early 80s was a time of reaction and recession. Economically, politically, things were volatile. You know, it was the end of the Jimmy Carter era, the beginning of the Reagan era. 
the beginning of you know the cocaine Wall Street era. Self indulgence had taken on a, a completely new tone, and there was there was a lot of reaction. You know, the lyrics of Hey Nineteen are about a guy who realized he's thirty. He's getting to be out of touch with what's hip. And there was kind of a change of the guard overall. And Steely Dan found themselves, of course, at the forefront of that. Not necessarily on the winning side. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why don't we jump into a track-by-track track of this album? And we'll start, of course, with the first song on side one, Babylon Sisters. This song it seems to portray some kind of a romantic or some kind of a connection going on i you know sisters i don't know if that's supposed to refer to a threesome but there is of course the the response from the female vocalist you know tell me i'm the only one so who knows what that's about and and of course with a lot of steely dan lyrics there's a certain kind of unknowable quality to it you know you you may think you understand it but it's it's definitely got that that kind of almost reggae-ish kind of rhythm but it's but it's more of a shuffle and of course that's partially due to the fact that the drummer in this is Bernard Purdy, who was a noted uh, session drummer who played on quite a bit of uh, Steely Dan songs. And and this is, of course, what he calls the Purdy Shuffle. If you if you saw the making of Asia DVD, you'd know uh, what he was talking about. Purdy had a bit of a reputation for being a bit of an egotist. But on the other hand, the man could back it up with great playing. And Chuck Rainey's on bass and Steve Kahn is on guitar. There's a lot of other people listed on this track in terms of musicianship. If I named them all, they would take the rest of the podcast. But uh, suffice it to say, this was a major, major song for Steely Dan. I believe it was the first single released, and it's a song that continued to be played live in concert for years once the band reformed in the early 90s. Yeah, uh, those of you who don't have an idea what the Purdy Shuffle is, if you remember Fool in the Rain by Led Zeppelin, that's pretty much John Bonham's impersonation of it. As far as the uh, the lyrics are concerned, um, if you remember a song called Island Girl by Elton John, I, I kind of think the subject matter is roughly the same. You know, you could be right on that. I'm going to have to like kind of go back and compare the lyrics. They definitely evoke... The hedonistic times. I mean, this is 1980 when the record was released, but obviously it has its roots in the 70s as they started recording in 79. Let's face it, even though 1980 was the first year of a new decade, as we've we've discussed before, a decade really doesn't start to become its own until about maybe two or three years in. So you're getting a lot of 70s runoff on this record. I mean, obviously it's the same production group, uh, production tree of you know, like I said, Gary Katz on you know producing and. Uh, Roger Nichols as the supervising or executive engineer. And, you know, they're relying, of course, on a lot of the same studio people who played on previous albums. But it definitely conveys that there's something going on here. And you could be right about the connection to Island Girl. That's a very interesting thought. I never thought about that. Well, if you remember the whole thing about the West Coast sound of the 60s and the West Coast ambience of the 60s was all about, you know, peace and love and if you're going to san francisco wear flowers in your hair very free love very idealistic and obviously by the end of the 70s that had changed uh people weren't using lsd and and uh, communicating their love for each other anymore it was very much turned to a very sort of egotistical uh, cocaine fueled environment which i think is a lot to do with the ambience of, of Steely Dan to begin with. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm sure to some extent that, you know, with all those big studio guys, there was probably some, you know, illicit stuff going on in the bathrooms or, you know, I mean, I've never read too many stories about Steely Dan sessions being out of control. But, you know, I, I know for a fact that Becker himself had some very very bad drug problems by this point with cocaine and I believe heroin and maybe some other stuff as well. And, you know, obviously that's going to contribute. And I know that lyrically everything's kind of written by the both, the two of them. So I think Becker's cynicism definitely probably factored into these lyrics, but it's a great song. And, and, you know, it's been played live, like I said, many times since the re the reunion of the nineties. And I don't know what else to say about it. Well, the last thing I would mention is the fade-out, which occurs over the space of about 
50 or 55 seconds in which apparently took um took a full day of mixing apparently to pull off oh i believe it probably took more than that you know there is stories of them taking days just to mix a fade out on a song i think a day would be lowballing it but you know it, they probably spent at least a day you know probably mixing the fade out and you know going over it numerous times i mean becker and fagan were noted perfectionists and i mean obviously the proof is in the grooves so do you have anything else to say about this mark no i believe we can move on to the next one we can chase the dragon uh nope you're jumping ahead. you're jumping ahead a few songs actually the next song song two is hey 19 oh, that's right you can chase the 19 yep and this song of course is is uh it's a classic rock perennial uh, I, every time I've gone to see Steely Dan, I've seen them nine times since 1996, they have always done this song. And notable about it live was that at one point during the song, Walter Becker would go into this long and rambling monologue. And it was always funny. I mean, he had a really, you know, really wicked sense of humor, and he would just kind of engage the audience with that. Mm. This song, obviously, is about uh, a 30-something, you know, former hipster um, trying to relate to a 19-year-old and realizing that uh, she don't know the Queen of Soul. I mean, she don't know Aretha Franklin, Mark. And what can you say about a girl who don't know Aretha Franklin? Yeah, it's pretty sad. Then again, I don't think Walter Becker knows much about Funky Town, so <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. And the first couple of times I saw them play this live, they changed the from Aretha Franklin to Otis Redding for what it's worth but this song you know again this is another story about like i said you know the older man younger woman thing and it's funny to you know at the time this song kind of i probably couldn't have probably couldn't have related to it very well but now being much older than 30 i can definitely understand how you can have that kind of misconnection between two people and it kind of points to the fact that like that this relationship you know such as it was was probably not destined to uh last for the ages but it's a gorgeous song in terms of the uh the melody everything about it really it there's it's just a flawless flawless glossy confection of sonic wonderment it's a it's a funk jam with a bebop flavor to it which is pretty much what this record is is all about exemplifies you know incredible style the uh, the subject matter is frequently dodgy and possibly would cause a lot of cancellations in the 21st century but uh, musically it's absolutely impeccable and, and the lyrics are definitely a record of the attitude of those times oh definitely i mean there was a lot less political correctness and you know those guys really weren't concerned with that they were concerned with exploring like the seedy underbelly of life and you know and that can refers to drugs relationships with women you know obviously by this point the group was kind of in the group was struggling internally and with the record company and but you can't argue with a result like this this is just a perfect fm radio song it sounds great i listened to it this afternoon i listened to the to the uh, Super Audio CD version, which is a high-res um, mix, and it just sounded absolutely gorgeous. It's you know, it still holds up, and it's you can see why this song became such a radio hit. Oh yeah, they they are the absolute pinnacle of yacht rock. Oh yes, with all with all that it entails, and of course, they themselves would very cynically not see themselves as yacht rock, which makes it even more perfect. Yeah, they were definitely, you know, they were definitely hipsters, and they were hipsters in a class by themselves. There was something about Steely Dan that defies, like, description. They're hard to describe to a newbie. I think if you, the only way to really properly in, induct someone into the Steely Dan universe is just to play them the greatest hits or play them some, some, some album cuts. You have to kind of figure it out for yourself, and... I, I think they liked it that way. I mean, obviously there was there was no other band like them before or since. Some have tried to emulate their style of songwriting production, 
but they just had they had access to the best of everything. I mean, they could call in pretty much whoever they wanted to to play on a session. I mean, there's no no slouchy musicians at all on this record, to be sure. Now, everybody involved in this record is a Juilliard graduate or Carnegie Hall veteran, you know, Wayne Short or um, what's his name, the guitar player, uh, the famous guitar player, Larry Carlton. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they all have the best of the best, Michael McDonald. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is true. And if unless you have something uh, more to add about this, Mark... No, I believe we can go on to the glamour profession. Ah, the L.A. concession. This song, from what I've read, is supposed to be about, basically about a drug dealer and a football star called Hoops McCann who's awaiting a delivery of some Bolivian marching powder. Uh, I, you know, don't Mm. doubt that that wasn't happening back then. This is uh, a song that, to me, qualifies as, like, high-end disco. It's got a real funkiness to it, and in fact... I read Brian Sweet's book, Reeling in the Years, which is a great book, by the way, if you if you want to get into the Steely Dan uh, mythology. Basically, Walter Becker pretty much said it was their attempt at doing disco, but with uh, more complex chord changes. And they referenced a band, and I can't remember for the life of me who that band was, but they essentially were trying to do a sort of disco-type song. And I think they achieved very well. It's this is one of this is a great song. It may be my favorite song on the entire album. Uh, there is some gorgeous lead guitar work, some very tasty lead guitar work from Steve, who uh, had, has played on many of their songs and is a one of the great jazz uh, session guitar players. And uh, you know, there's uh, bass by Anthony Jackson, and I'm telling you, you. This is just a, a beautiful song. It's a shimmering uh, sonic delight. And it's it's interesting how you have this sort of sunny disco music or their version of disco. And yet it's really about a dark kind of subject matter and a dark type of person. 1980 was kind of like the, the era where disco dried up and died, uh, which goes to show you that this record definitely was on the books for at least 18 months was finally completed because by the time that this song was released it was almost kind of obsolete in a way um would you agree with that yeah yeah, to a degree because although the term disco was no longer being used disco music was still coming out in fact i think disco music was was coming out even until like 1981 they may have changed the the descriptor to dance music but I don't think disco itself, the musical aspect of it was dead. I think people were still going to Studio 54. It's just that the fad and the accoutrements, you know, the associated with, you know, the three-piece white suits, the coke files, and the slick back hair, I think those were gone. I think by this point, people were looking to the new wave and the new romantics for the fashion of music and entertainment. But I do think, like I said, musically it was still there. But yeah, but I but to a degree you're right in that you know the disco kind of fad or the disco movement was pretty much a non-entity by this point. And it's interesting that new wave and new romantics and music like like Devo or Human League that it was specifically synthesized or oriented really too far for Steely Dan. And that is the point at which they disappear from the scene. Right. Well, their, their disappearance, and we'll probably get into that towards after we've kind of reviewed the album. But yeah, I think it, you know, they really weren't going to be following that example of the hypersynthesized new wave movement. So it was maybe it was, you know, just as well that Steely Dan kind of took a, a breather for, you know, a decade or so to kind of give. To kind of give both of those guys a chance to kind of recoup and recalibrate because, you know, they both took different paths in the 1980s. But, yeah, it's Steely Dan would not have I, – I can't see them jumping on the new wave bandwagon or new romantic for that matter. No, I definitely don't think it would have been possible. The, the interesting thing, though, is that, you know, a lot of those new wave bands – ended up doing a whole bunch of Motown covers and, and gravitating towards soul music 
but again, in a way that that would have been anathema but it's Steely Dan. If you remember things like you know Soft Cells version of Tainted Love, yep, and uh, you know the Eurythmics that were very soul music influenced. But again, in a way that Steely Dan perhaps were too organically inclined to to, to try to emulate. Yeah, I mean, I I think like they even Fagan even made a kind of derisive comment about uh, this ARP synthesizer they'd used on Asia, feeling that it was it was from the Hollywood Arranger School of trying to like simulate orchestration, and they even they admitted it didn't age well. I think they were definitely more organic, although they were not against using drum machines uh, to augment or in some cases replace uh, a live drummer to get that perfect feel. I mean, there's stories about this album where their engineer, Roger Nichols, uh, who passed away in 2011, I believe, had created his own drum machine. It was called Wendell. And Wendell was used a lot of times, and they would spend hours just moving the beat, you know, milliseconds. I mean, they wanted perfection within milliseconds and they would shift, you know, they would shift beats around and they, you know, like I said, definitely organic, but they weren't above using some technological trickery to achieve their high aims of polish and perfection. That's true. I believe somewhere on this record is a guitar solo that was recorded three or four years earlier for a completely different song. Which yep. shows up um, in the middle of um, one of these songs. Yep, and we'll get to that. But, but I think we've uh, I think we've dissected glamour profession. So unless you um, have something else to say, Mark. No, I think we should ride on to the pompous at this point. All righty, we're gonna flip this record over to side two, and we're gonna go to the title track, Gaucho. A song about uh, that references spangled leather ponchos and bodacious cowboys. Yeah, it might be an evening at the Blue Oyster Bar. I'm not sure. <laughs> this song uh, is a bit of a has some controversy behind it because in an interview around this time, Donald Fagan referenced the fact that he this song was influenced by a Keith Jarrett song called. As Long As You Know You're Living Yours, which had come out in 74 or 75 on his own album. And so in doing some research for this show, I listened to Keith Jarrett's song. Well, let's just say he definitely had the basis for a lawsuit, which he did initiate. And all subsequent pressings of the Gaucho album and CD co-credit him as being one of the writers of Gaucho. The basic intro to the song is very, very similar. Yeah, the chord structure for the intro of the song, and maybe the first minute or so, the verse melody is quite similar. Um, but Gaucho, the song, takes quite a few turns that go beyond that. So I could definitely see Keith Jarrett receiving like a third of the credit, but I would not call the, the entire song a plagiarism of Keith Jarrett's work. Although it definitely heavily inspired, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he had the basis for a lawsuit, just like you said, just based on the intro. I mean, his the, the major difference between the two songs, of course, is that his is an instrumental and Steely Dan's has a vocal with lyrics, of course. It's one of the few times where, it's, in fact, it's the only instance I can think of where I can really hear them kind of really appropriating something. I mean, one of the great things about their previous records and their whole discography is that they've managed to blend in disparate influences and yet somehow make it into a cohesive whole and just make it make some great musical statements. But this may may have been one time where he was Donald Fagan was a little too close to it. Maybe he was listening to it while they were recording the album and. That's what inspired the music, but I still enjoy the song. It's a, it's got a sort of a knowable quality to it, of course, like like you know most Steely Dan songs do. The drums on this are played by the late Jeff Picaro, him being of Toto, of course, and Steve Kahn is on guitars, and there's some Becker is on Walter Becker's on bass. I like it. I think it's a fun song. It's it's. When I hear the intro to this song, I always, in my mind, picture 
an exterior shot of a New York apartment building, like from the like from some 1980s movie, like a Woody Allen movie, where it's used to sort of it's playing over an establishing shot of some someone's apartment building or someone's uh, brownstone in New York. Or I could even see it like in an 80s sitcom as a you know tra- as a transition, you know, like same kind of idea. Uh, when I hear the song, it definitely has that yeah, kind of an, 80s feel. Yeah, it's an overhead shot taken from a helicopter. And, you know, the guy's walking in. It's establishing, as you say, the the landscape. It's one of the more cynical lyrics. And it's, you know, the line about high in the Custer Dome. And we all know the story of General Custer. So that's a yeah. very interesting image. Well... Becker and Fagan were nothing if not uh, really key. They're, one of the key things was conjuring up lyrical imagery. And you, when you pay attention to the lyrics of their songs, the, sometimes, it, like I said, there's an unknowable quality to it, but yet it sounds good. Whether it's making sense or not, or whether the, the meaning or the undertone is <clears throat> immediately apparent, it doesn't matter. It's just it all hangs together in a gorgeous kind of way. And, uh, this song is no exception. You know, it's like, it's the title track. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I'd ever heard the phrase bodacious cowboys before I heard them steal, you know, this on a steely dance song. So, you know, where else are you going to hear about the, them bodacious cowboys, Mark? That's true. Hiding away in the Custer dome, which <laughs> is a nice way of saying ivory tower, but, so much better. Yeah, there were a lot of ivory towers back in the 80s. Like you said, it was the age of, you know, cocaine and excess. These guys were definitely caught up in some of that excess. I, you know, maybe Becker more so. Their lyrics and their attitudes, I think, really did reflect the zeitgeist and just kind of what was going on in society. I mean, obviously, these guys were not, uh, you know, living in the ghetto by this point these guys were probably living in very fancy apartments themselves but i think they still had enough of a sort of street level credibility that they could still tap into this i mean to keep in mind that by this point they had moved back to new york after living in los angeles for several years probably like five or six years and i i think that 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 kind of new york attitude that new york grit kind of infects this album but in a in a very good way sort of like there's some girls almost you might say so true so true and on that note let us move on to the next song which was another single from the album time out of mind and this song features a guest guitar solo by none other than mark knopfler of dire straits uh his first and only appearance on a steely dan album Apparently, uh, when he got to the studio, he had to t- he he had to take a tape of the song home with him to kind of work up a solo because he is not a school musician and that he can read music. Whereas most of their session guys could just come in, you know, set up, play off a sheet, and just go. But apparently, uh, Becker and Fagan were tended to be a little oblivious sometimes to maybe people's feelings or. They tended to be kind of blunt, and they would say things over the talkback. And I, I don't think they were trying necessarily to be uh, denigrating, but they may have just said, uh, you know, that, can you do that again? Or I don't think it was a pleasant experience, but it's a great uh, it's a great guitar solo, and there's some rhythm guitars by Hugh McCracken and Walter Becker as well. But this is a fun song. This is a song I've heard them play several times live, at least – the last three or four, and it's a very good song. It's uh, It definitely references drugs and the whole, tonight I'm going to chase the dragon. But again, against those shimmering uh, pop s- sonics. Yeah, chase the dragon is an expression, um, a euphemism that goes all the way back to uh, the days of Cab Calloway and Minnie the Moocher. It's... Uh, one thing that they definitely picked up from L.A. because that's much more of an L.A. thing than New York. Production-wise, it's like you said, it's a very snappy song. It's one. Of, it's the shortest song in the record, I think. And it's the most, like, obviously radio-ready, single-ready, which is interesting because the subject matter is so dark. But again, that is the prime Steely Dan formula. 
Yep, take a dark subject matter and put it against sunny, shimmering music. Again, it's it's just a, it's a good song. I've like I said, I've seen it live several times, and I don't have anything more to say about it. Um, I don't, how about you, Mark? No, that's about it. It's um, the great song though. It's great. It's apart from Hey Nineteen on this record, I would say Time Out of Mind is the most obviously you know single ready song. In fact, I believe the B side for this, or it might have been for Hey Nineteen, or was a live version of Bodhisattva from 1974, and it's kind of infamous because the intro was done by this guy named Jerome Anaton. I hope that I said that right. And he was this guy who worked, uh, this was back, of course, when Celia Dan was still touring, and he had originally been like a truck driver, but apparently he drank a lot and crashed a few trucks, so they took him out of the off as a driver, but they kept him as an MC, and he does this hilariously slurred drunken intro to the song and it apparently was recorded off a cassette somebody but it was decent enough quality that they put it as a b-side i don't know if you, have you heard that mark no i have not actually the, the thing about the, uh, the cd issues of these records is steely dan scrupulously um avoids ever putting bonus tracks on anything yeah even their box set only has only has really one or two real vault obscurities as far as like maybe demos or early recordings yeah they're they're very kind of scrim they kind of they don't give you much they don't give you anything really in terms of bonus tracks i mean i don't even know why fm never appeared on one of these reissues as a bonus track i guess it's a way to sell the greatest hits album that's pretty much it but yeah we've moved on to um we've gone we've gone to my rival i believe yes this is my least favorite song on the album. However, Steely, even a Steely Dan, me also. Yeah, but even a lesser song like this is still a really, it's still a pretty good song. It's not that it's a bad song or that I think it's you know subpar. I just, I, it's just my least favorite. But even then, even then, it still has, of course, it has impeccable musicianship and. It's certainly worth listening to. It's it's not you know it doesn't detract from the album at all. I mean, Steely Dan would not put a song on a record unless they felt it was going to enhance the record. So I don't think it I don't think it downgrades at all. I think it's just you know it's just kind of there, but it's 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 pleasant enough and it um, you know it kills a few minutes. It's sort of like the um, it's like the, what was that? Jeez, ah, what was that song on Pretzel Logic? Remember, uh, oh, the instrumental, the wah wah guitar. Oh, uh, yeah, St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah, by who? Who was the originator of that? Scott Joplin. No, it wasn't Scott Joplin. Scott I think was, Joplin. I think it was Duke Ellington. I'd have to look it up, but it, it's it's yeah. I know what you're saying though. It's, it does kind of share a similarity with that. You're right. I never thought about that. You know, it's jazzy, it's funky, but it's, you know, it's probably the least remarkable track on the album. Yeah, it's 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 good, but it's it's there's definitely a reason it's next to last. And speaking of that, we'll go into our last song, Third World Man, which in my opinion is just a gorgeous, epic track. I love this song to death. It's it's very melancholy. It's very downbeat. The lyrics are about uh, a guy who's kind of holed up, uh, looking, waiting for the end of the world. He is maybe he's cut off from civilization, and he's apparently maybe not the most well-adjusted person. And this is the song that was built up from some a leftover guitar solo from the Asia sessions, and. They loved the solo. The solo. Let me just make sure. I just want to make double check. Okay, yeah, this is Larry Carlton, who of course uh, played his ass off on uh, the Royal Scam in Asia, and this is his only appearance on this record. And like I said, they actually just took his guitar solo from uh, Asia leftover, built this song around it, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, if you there's a bootleg out there, Mark called the gaucho sessions or the alternate gaucho whatever and there's the original version of this song where it's called were you blind that day has completely different lyrics uh Mm. it's kind of like a demo rough version of this not quite as produced but like i said i've seen this this is a song i'm sure i've seen steely dan perform it live but i know i saw donald fagan perform it live in 2006 when i saw his 
solo concert in Boston. But I, I this song just slays me. One of my absolute favorites and never ceases to make a playlist. That's one of, one of my favorites of this record as well. It's definitely one of the moodiest songs on the record. And it's not the most immediately accessible track. It's it's a deep cut for sure. But it's yeah. one that it's it's one that, you know, after you've assimilated the Steely Dan groove and eternal ambience, it's one that you come to appreciate, but it, it's it's a tough nut to crack. It's worth the effort, but it does take that effort. Oh, well worth it. And the drums by, are by Steve Gadd, who, of course, played the title track of Asia and is one of – who's just a phenomenal drummer. I mean, he can play a song like Asia with mad drum fills and technique and then do just a more subtle kind of drumming on this where he's just kind of tapping. He's probably just tapping the rim of the snare, but there's nothing any less epic about it. Steve Kahn, who Kahn! also plays some of the – uh, background guitars, but like I said, the I think the real highlight of this song is the stellar guitar solo by Larry Carlton, and I, I almost I, I wonder what he thought of the fact that they took his old solo and just built an entirely new song around it. He must have been shaking his head, but he, I'm sure he didn't mind the royalties. No, no, I think he did quite well off that for a percentage of a of a single cut of a record that's guaranteed to sell, you know, multi-platinum. So I, I don't think he regretted it at all. Yes, and Steely Dan back then was a license to print money. I mean, <laughs> this album came out, like, right right before the Christmas season. I mean, well, probably, you know, November 21st, so right around Thanksgiving. And it probably would have come out sooner had it not been for the lawsuit. But, yeah, getting back to the song, it's an absolute gorgeous song. Very downbeat, very melancholy, and kind of a fitting coda to this era of Steely Dan, because this is the last song that Steely Dan will release for 20 years. And now that we've gone through the, the record proper, do you have, I mean, unless you have something else to say about Third World Man. No, that's it. I want to talk about a song that's kind of got a legendary status in Steely Dan lore, a song that was recorded for this album called The Second Arrangement. And this was generally viewed by everybody involved as being the best song on the record. And I don't remember who was on the original recording. I don't have my Steely Dan reference material handy, but obviously, you know, it was top of the line uh, backup. And apparently um, an engineer somehow mistakenly ended up erasing most of the track, which of course just took the wind out of Becker and Fagan's sails. Interestingly enough, they did recut the song for this record, but they didn't record it with the same exact group of musicians, and they weren't happy with the the final results. This is another song that is definitely out there on the YouTubes. You can find it. There's one or two different versions of it, but it's not the version that they would have put on the album. And, I, and it makes me wonder what they would have taken off. I'm, I'm going to guess they would have taken off my rival to put this song on there, but we'll never know, obviously. According to what I'm reading on Wikipedia, um, they abandoned it in favor of Third World Man. Right, okay. But the interesting thing is, recently a report (laughs) surfaced that one of, I think it was one of Roger Nichols' kids, went through his his collection of tapes, and they found a tape with that, that said Third World Man on it, and could possibly be the version that got recorded that got erased. Now, obviously, he must have had like a reference tape or a, or maybe a, he had a copy of a rough mix. There hasn't been any news on it lately, but apparently uh, whoever they spoke to said that if, the, you know, if we're, we're kind of reluctant to play it, but if we do, we're probably going to make a transfer to a digital format because you know how it is, Mark, with a lot of these old tapes. They can pretty much self-destruct as soon as you play them. So they may have to bake the tape and put it, you know, and see what how it sounds. But if it if it is the original recording, I, I'm curious. I wonder if it'll come out somehow, whether it's part of a reissue or a box set, or maybe even just like a standalone digital single. But I'd I'd be curious to hear it. I've heard the the recut version, and it's it's pretty good. It's not a it's a pretty good song. Very funky and 
kind of almost disco-y in a way, but enjoyable. We'll see what happens. I mean, like you say, Steely Dan are very reluctant to release unreleased stuff. And, you know, unless they release as part of a Gaucho remaster or reissue or, you know, I don't know. Maybe, like I said, maybe they'll release it as a standalone single. Who knows? I don't know. But I'd like to hear it. Yeah. A standalone digital single would definitely make the most sense. Because that wouldn't tie it down to like being, you know, from any single project or give it like a the stigma of being an outtake, which I think is one of the things that like Fagan is, how would you say, definitely down on. I don't think that Fagan likes the idea of releasing outtakes or unfinished or anything that's, that's less than purely perfected. So therefore, the idea of a, of a standalone digital single, as you say, would give it its own identity. I think so. I mean, I'd like to hear it. I mean, it's obviously going to it depend on the quality of the tape. I mean, I don't know if it's like, you know, if it's a cassette tape or if it was a reel-to-reel tape. I, you know, I don't know. You know, if but if it's listenable on some level, I hope it'll get a release. You know, even if it means just putting out like a, some maybe putting together a new Steely Dan compilation CD or whatever and throwing that on there as a bonus track. But we'll see. But it's it's definitely acquired a kind of legendary status. And, you know, given all the turmoil that the, the band was going through and the, you know, with their battles and both internally and externally, you know, that had to have been really defeating. I mean, I guess uh, Roger Nichols told Fagan about it and Fagan's reaction was just to just walk away and leave the studio for the day. He didn't like throw a fit or anything. I don't know how Becker felt, but I, I can imagine if you've got a song that you're really high on and that, you know, you, you, somebody screws it up like that, you'd be fit to be tied. Yeah. Walking away from the day is definitely like the most humane and mature response you can have. Well, I was also going to say that, you know, I mean, Steely Dan, to a large degree, walked away from being Steely Dan after completing this record. It is pretty much, you know, the, the culmination of an era and the capstone to an era. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, after reaching, like, the summit with Asia and, you know, after all the trials and tribulations, I think they needed to just step away from it for, obviously, quite a while Becker had to kind of straighten himself out, and Fagan went went right into recording the Nightfly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think at this point they probably just were at the point where uh, we've done all we can do and we need to, you know, walk away. I mean, and there was definitely an enigmatic thing about them because they hadn't toured since 74 or 75. So once a Steely Dan record came out, you know, that was it. I They were not known for doing talk shows or appearing on American Bandstand. So that was pretty much it. I mean, that was 1981. The band, you know, kind of went out the whimper. It was just sort of like, okay, we're done. But musically, I think they went out on a high note. And this, you know, obviously they came back, you know, in the 90s and then in the 2000s, they put out two more studio records, which are very fine albums. But this, I think, at least for me, this is really the end of the the line in terms of their classic era and just the height of their what they were doing yeah two against nature and and everything must go are really good albums they're they're a little bit postscript but yeah gaucho pretty much is the end of the old testament so to speak it's an epitaph for the 70s in a lot of ways and it's one of the most fitting epitaphs that the 70s could have it's affectionate but it's cynical, it's dark, but it's, you know, it's appreciative. It, it's a, You come away feeling a lot of different emotions. You definitely understand why the album costs $2.5 million to make. But yet it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel incredibly overly polished to the point where it, it becomes cloying. No. No, it, it it definitely has, like I said, that shimmering sonic pop perfection, but not it's not overdone. I I don't think like some people feel that Steely Dan is a little too the later stuff especially is is too polished. It's too ephemeral. It's just it's just kind of detached. I don't think that at all. I think they were very tapped into what they were doing, 
and they were expressing their viewpoint of the, the, the downside of life and, like I said, some very shady characters and some sketchy and skeevy situations. But at the same time, there's a bit of there's a slight kind of optimism that kind of gets through. And it certainly doesn't leave you depressed. Like I said, you know, you have downbeat subject matter, but you have upbeat music. But yeah, I mean, I think Gaucho is a great album. It's my fourth favorite Steely Dan album, if I were to rank, you know, the first seven albums from the classic era. And I think they went out on top. I mean, these guys, you know, it took it took a lot out of them, obviously, hence the breakup and, you know, not very long after this record came out. If, if Steely Dan had never regrouped, if it was just this era that they were known for, and I think this era is largely what they're known for. I mean, they don't really do a lot of the newer or the more recent Steely Dan stuff in concert anymore. It, it, they would still have the legend that they have and the the kind of the sort of acclaim and affection that fans and critics have for them. Oh, absolutely. I think that the last... The last two albums in particular are sort of the peak of their artistry and definitely the peak of their creative expression from a technical point of view as well as artistic. Yeah, I mean, I would love to have been like a fly on the wall when those two are writing songs together or even just attending, you know, like maybe a Steely Dan recording session just to see, you know, how many times they recorded. I'm sure they recorded stuff over and over, you know, oftentimes with different musicians and there was no guarantee, no matter who you were, that if you played on a Steely Dan session, that what you did was going to necessarily end up on the record. There's stories of people getting frustrated with them because, you know, they played something, but it didn't make it on the record. And I don't think that necessarily means that it wasn't good. I think it's just, I think it all depends on what kind of mood they're in at any given point as, as to what they're going to like or what they're not going to like. I mean, I'm sure some of the musicians who played on this record would probably say, you know, I played this and I know Mark Knopfler, you know, had a little frustration with them because he wasn't used to people being so kind of blunt the way they were. And like I said, I don't think they meant anything by it. I don't think they were saying it to be disparaging. I think they just were used to dealing with people in a very straightforward way. And, you know, he's not he wasn't a session guy. He didn't have that mentality or that attitude. But it made for a great solo and a great song, and you know what else can you say? Yeah, like I said, it is definitely the epitaph for an era. And overall, you know, it is kind of Steely Dan's swan song. Um, as we mentioned before, they do have two postscripts, um, Two Against Nature and Everything Must Go, which are really good albums in their own right. But maybe there is a reason that they're not, as you say, they're not spotlighted too much in concert these days they kind of feel more like afterthoughts wouldn't you agree yeah and you know the other thing too is that with most groups the most creative era is the original era i mean that's when you're younger you're a little more adventurous you're you're more willing to try different things and that's and that's gonna that's very apparent if you listen to their back catalog of records you know, some records just have all these different styles. But and I think what happened was that when they regrouped uh, to do those records, rather than do, employing the approach where they brought in different musicians or tracks, I think they largely relied on their touring musicians for that. And the, the spirit of adventure isn't isn't quite there. Like you said, they're very good albums. They're very enjoyable, and they're certainly you know listenable. But they don't have the same kind of uh, anarchic quality that uh, Gaucho has or any of the records that preceded it. Uh, and that's because by the time they got back together, they were older, they were you know, wiser, set in their ways, you know, not the anarchic, you know, young men they were. I mean, I think it was um, Fagan who was even refer referencing this album. He said, you can't have that sort of adolescent kind of angst and energy forever there comes a point when you turn like 30 or something like that, that that starts to go away and you start to, you start to settle into something a little different. Even if Steely Dan had hung around and continued, you know, they probably would have, you know, softened a bit over time. But again, this is just this really, like you said, it's the epitaph, but it's a glorious epitaph. And I mean, it's, it's one of those records I can listen to all the time and still enjoy it. 
Oh, yeah, it's a classic for the ages. Probably my third favorite after Asia and the Royal Scam. Yeah, and I think at some point, you know, maybe we'll we'll have to look uh, on the back catalog of Steely Dan, whether we do individual album shows like this or if we just do a sort of overview. But I would like to discuss the stuff that preceded this in, you know, in some detail because there's just so many good songs and so many great albums to, to look at. So we'll have to do that at some point. I'm sure we will. But I think that sums up Gaucho. Uh, that sums it up for me anyway. Yeah, I think we pretty much explored this fine fleeting epitaph for a gloriously departed era. Yeah. Which, uh, which if you're over the age of 19, you're never going to understand anyway. So. No. Uh, I'd like to wish everybody a happy holiday season, the holiday of your choice. Um, I'd like to point out the fact that we do have a few listeners out there who may be suffering. I don't even want to say this on the air, but there are a few people that I know of that I think you know of also that are down with what we'll call the seasonal flu. Yeah, and and obviously, uh, you know, both of us send our best wishes for, you know, full and speedy recoveries to all those people who are suffering and, you know, the holidays are a time when, you know, certain feelings do come up. And like I said, you know, I don't want this to become a public service announcement, but, you know, we, we're we here. We know, you know, and we kind of understand. And uh, I wish everybody here the happiest of holidays for this crazy, crazy year we've gone through. And let's hope that 2021 gets us back on track and gets things, you know, back to some sort of semblance of normal. I don't think it's ever going to be quite like it was, but let's hope it we can get we can get as much of it back as we can. Yes, I absolutely agree with that and I want to see everybody in 2021 happy and healthy and <sighs> back to some semblance of normality as Chris says. And on that note, I, I think we can pretty much wrap things up. Absolutely. Well, this was the uh our year-end episode of the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konsarowski. Happy holidays to all, and we'll see you in 2021. Be there and don't be square. <laughs> the opinions expressed on the Double K Super Show do not necessarily reflect those of the Double K Super Show staff, or any rational human being for that matter. The Double K Super Show is a Double K production. Copyright 2010 Double K Productions. All rights preserved.